Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. For more than two years now, the hottest ticket in Washington hasn't been at the Kennedy Center or to see the Caps or the Nats play hockey or baseball or even to attend President Trump's Hanukkah party. The hottest ticket has been the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the newest of the Smithsonian Museums and the final museum to be built on the National Mall. The founding director of the museum, Dr. Lonnie Bunch, a longtime friend of AJC, joins us now to talk about the history, the present, and the future of Black-Jewish relations in this country. Lonnie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. Now, when I visited the National Museum of African American History and Culture for the first time, I wandered the halls, I wandered the exhibition, as everyone has been. I was struck by the power of the history, and there were a few things I took pictures of. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I looked back at those pictures, and I found a few quotes that I took a snapshot of. One reads, in part, history is literally present in all that we do, which, of course, is a James Baldwin quote. And the second that I wanted to share before before we dive right in, is there is nothing more powerful than a people, than a nation steeped in its history. And there are few things as noble as honoring our ancestors by remembering, which, of course, you'll recognize because those are are your words. So I want to begin with the history. When people talk about the history of black Jewish relations in America, they usually picture, perhaps first of all, the image of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel marching together in Selma, Alabama. But of course, a picture is just a snapshot in time. What are the broader headlines of the history of black Jewish relations? When have our communities been drawn together and when have we been tugged apart? Well, I think it's a long history that is really important to understand. There were moments of great tension um, early in the 19th century. Um, many of the business community that was involved in the slave trade brought blacks and Jews together but really brought people together was the fights in the early 20th century for a freer and fairer America. What you see is when large numbers of especially Eastern European Jews come to the United States in the late 19th century, um, there's, uh, they face a lot of anti-Semitism, and they face the kind of hatred that the newly freed slaves faced. And so it was natural that they would come together, and they came together in organizations like the NAACP, the fact that when the NAACP was created in 1909, it was strongly dominated and supported by the Jewish community. And so there's been a long history of blacks and Jews recognizing that as people who suffered the burdens of discrimination, that it would be better if they learned to work together rather than to be separate entities fighting for a freer and fairer America. And what about some of the challenging times throughout history? Are there, are there periods that stand out as times when the two communities felt specifically in conflict? I think there's a lot of real interesting moments around the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. But on the one hand, you have these amazing moments where people like Rabbi Herschel get together with Martin Luther King and are really risking their lives to be part of the civil rights movement. And then you see a large number of young um, students white, many Jewish, coming to the South to risk their lives, sometimes losing their lives, to begin to demand for freedom and to fight with African Americans. So there was this sort of sense of camaraderie, but there were also tensions. 
there were tensions in terms of many African-Americans as the 60s evolved, began to look into towards the black power and began to worry about the influence of the Jewish community in organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And there were really almost purges separating the communities, but they still work together. And really, I think the major split of recent tensions between blacks and Jews have revolved around two things. One is the issue of affirmative action and whether that is fair or not. And the other is the issue of support for Israel versus support for the Palestinians. So there have been some real concrete rocks, if you will, that have splintered that relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm glad that you bring us to the present because my next question is, what is the state of black Jewish relations in the U.S. today? I would say personally that we're not at a zenith, but I, I don't think we're quite at a nadir either. You know, is, is this one of the higher points or lower points of black Jewish allyship in 2019? I think that where we are is at a point where there's nowhere to go but up. Mm. Um, while we're not at the nadir, I'm not convinced that we've found ways, whether it's through our organizations, through our churches and temples, that we've really found ways to find common ground again. However, unfortunately, because of the recent tragedies, the shootings in Pittsburgh, the kind of violence that's been going on with white supremacists and neo-Nazis, I think you begin to see attempts by the black and Jewish community to say, well, we're in this together. We've got to find ways because we're the targets at so much of this neo-Nazi hate. And so I'm optimistic that, in essence, we're moving towards building on those past relationships and finding new platforms of commonality. But we're not there yet. And, and of course, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. When I heard the news about Pittsburgh, and frankly, when I heard the news about Christchurch to take us internationally, one of the first things I thought about was the shooting at the church in Charleston. And those echoes and reverberations, all kind of driven by white supremacy, really do highlight the need for our two communities to come together. I think you've put your finger on what is the really important issue is that there is a growing sense of white nationalism. And if you listen to the people who espouse that, the hatred is really towards immigrants, blacks, and Jews. And so in many ways, it is really incumbent on us to do some of the work we've done in the past, which is to illuminate all the dark corners of the American experience, to make sure people are clear about what these races stand for, but also how do we come together to create the kind of platforms that allow us to bring the support in to provide legal challenges to help people who combat this. So I think this is a real good time for blacks and Jews to say it's our time again to join hands to fight for a better country. Absolutely. And and Lonnie, you know, you just said the key word there, right? Which is which is how, right? AJC is committed to working to strengthen black Jewish ties. And, and I know that there are others in the Jewish community and, and certainly others in the black community who are similarly committed. So I'm curious from where you sit, from your personal experience as a black man, from your knowledge as a leading intellectual voice in the African-American community, you know, what should the Jewish community be doing to do our part to strengthen those ties? Well, I think part of it is what AJC is doing, right, which is really creating grassroots opportunities for interaction among communities. It is hard work, it is slow work, but it is the essential work so that we recognize that the coalition is built both from the ground up, but also from the top down. And so what I see are really interesting attempts 
For example, in Charleston, um, after the shooting at, at Mother Emanuel, blacks and Jewish, black and Jewish community came together to create programs to allow people both to heal, but to illuminate the challenge of racism and, um, and anti-Semitism in America. So I love the fact that we're getting together to basically come together and coalesce. I also think what's really important is that we support each other in a way that says the African-American and the Jewish community do not have to be in lockstep on every issue. We can debate a variety of issues, but we shouldn't let those debates be the splinter that separates us, because ultimately our greatest strength is in unity. And if we allow sort of the, the right to have legitimate debates to prevent us from moving forward, then I think we're playing into the hands of the neo-Nazis. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, now, early on in your tenure as director of the museum, I think even before breaking ground on the physical building, you and some of your leadership team traveled to Israel with AJC's Project Interchange. What was the purpose of that trip, and what did you get out of it? I would argue that going to Israel was one of the most important things I've done, not just in building this museum, but in my career. Um, in several ways, many things happened that were just amazing. First of all, the obvious thing of being able to build a team to bring together staff and board members along with AJC uh, staffers to basically share that together. And what I found so fascinating was that unlike most of the project interchange um, where there's a diversity of people, this was really staff and people tied to the museum. And so we had arranged that we would spend time um, dealing with the spiritual nature of this trip, but also we'd spend time looking at Palestinian-Jewish relations. But even more importantly, we spent time looking at the museums, because what Israel's museums do better than any other country in the world is regardless of the subject matter, these museums explore national identity. Hmm. And that's what I really wanted this museum to do. I didn't want this museum to explore black life. I wanted to explore America through the lens of the African-American community. I wanted to understand America's identity vis-a-vis -vis race. So going to Israel was crucially important. And to this day, the staff that was with me, we meet, we talk about it, and we always say next year in Jerusalem. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. It's that, That's so fascinating. Can you say a little bit more about something in particular that struck you at one of the museums in Israel or, or something that I may remember or, or that our listeners can look out for as they go through the exhibit at the National Museum of African American History and Culture that kind of you know ties it intellectually to what you picked up in Israel? I'll tell you something very simple that was transformative. Yeah. Um, at the Israeli Museum, Israel Museum, there was a series of small models of different synagogues from around the world. Oh, yeah, right? I know it well. And I was so blown away by the regional variations that I came back and said, we're going to do an exhibition based on regional variations within the African-American community. What was it like if you grew up in Alabama in the 1920s or if you grew up in the Bronx in the 1970s? And one of the most important things we've done is help people understand that there's not a single African-American experience. And the roots of that were that visit to the museum in Israel. 
amazing. That's really, really fascinating. Uh, you know, it also just as as one thought that occurs to me. You know, we we are two communities that have often spoke of diaspora, right? Of of Jews for the past two thousand years, or at least until nineteen forty eight, kind of you know having been cast out of of Israel and finding ourselves in in every corner of the world, and and certainly black people around the world um, having been taken out of Africa or in some instances you know left of their own accord, and the different tenors and tones and timbers that our lives have picked up in the places where we found ourselves is a really fascinating thing to explore. I think so. And I think what's interesting is historically, the treatment of the Jewish community, you know, out of Egypt, um, really has been something that has been inspired and been sort of seized on by the African American community. I remember more than anything else when we're driving through Israel and uh, we're on this bus and, you know, we have several local guides and, and my staff and colleagues. And all of a sudden I see a sign and I yell for the bus to stop. Mm. And I remember the, the guide says, why are we stopping? Because we were crossing the River Jordan. Wow. And for African-Americans, there is nothing more sacred. There is nothing that symbolizes the promise of freedom than the River Jordan. And there we were. I made everybody get out of the bus. And we stood and on the banks of the River Jordan, and I'll never forget, we looked down the river, and there was a black church from Detroit, Michigan, baptizing people in the River Jordan. Wow. Um, it really was something that I have never forgotten, and it really gave me the belief that we could do this museum, because you're right, when we went, I don't think I had a staff of 10 or 15 people. We had no idea exactly where the building would be. We had no money, no collections. But crossing the River Jordan reminded me that you got to believe first. Wow, that is I've <laughs> I have chills. Um, I'm actually I'm going to be in Detroit in just a couple of weeks for AJC's second annual Black Jewish Student Summit, where we'll have Jewish student leaders and Black student leaders from about a dozen colleges and universities around the U.S. coming together to learn from one another, to learn how to support one another. And and one of the things that we'll be doing since the dates fall out just before the holiday of Passover is we'll be sharing a freedom seder together. We'll be engaging in some of the traditional practices of Passover, but with African-American inflection. And, and I know that that one of the themes that we'll focus on deeply is, is what the exodus from Egypt has meant in the religious traditions of both people. Exactly. I'm, I'm excited that you're doing that. I, I really do believe that crossing lines through ceremonies, through the breaking of food together, really helps people understand that we're not that different. Now, Lonnie, just before we close, since we've found ourselves on the topic of religion, can you tell us a bit about the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life at the museum? Why did you create this center as part of the museum? Why is it important to you that the center you know, have that religious inflection? Well, what I realize is how central religion, spirituality is for the African-American community. And yet, when you go to most museums, they rarely talk about it oh, there may be a pew here or there, or there may be, let's talk about Dr. Martin Luther King. But what I really wanted was to be able to understand how spirituality, how religion has really informed the culture, has really been the sort of Bible, if you will, to demand social change. And I wanted a place that would allow us not to focus simply on Christianity, but to talk about black Jews, to talk about the impact of Islam. And so in a way, what I was trying to do was to get people to 
break the paradigm that when you talk about black religion, it is simply Christianity and black baptism, black Baptist. So what I wanted was to say, let us understand what spirituality really means at its roots. And what that then allows us to do is to think about crafting programs that look at black Jewish relationships, notions of spirituality. So what I'm trying to do in essence is to expand the notion of what spirituality is, bring more communities into this conversation, and to recognize that you can't understand the African-American experience without understanding how central, how key to everything is spirituality and religion. Well, that sounds like a, a fascinating and deeply important exercise. Lonnie, thank you so much for your years of friendship and for joining us today on AJC Passport. Well, I'm so excited. And as you know, I'm the biggest supporter of AJC and, and I love the work you do. And I'm looking forward to many years of causing trouble together. <laughs> Good trouble, as, as John Lewis says. That's right. Good trouble. It's time for our special Israeli elections segment. Each week through the upcoming general elections on April 9th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is the battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on the Israeli elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Lahav is back with us today on the battle for Balfour. Lahav, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Now, perhaps no recent event is going to have a greater impact on the April 9th election than the flare-up that we've seen in Gaza. Can you tell us about what has happened? I guess there are actually two different threads of things that have happened, right? There's what's happened in Gaza among the Palestinians living there, and then there's what's happened from Gaza. So let's start with the from. What happened over the past week from Gaza into Israel? Well, um, on Sunday night, well, actually, it was like early Monday morning. It was like the crack of dawn on Monday. Um, rockets from Gaza hit Moshav Mishmeret, which is um, about 40 minutes or half an hour north of Tel Aviv. Um, completely destroyed a house. Um, it was sort of like a compound where you had like three generations of an entire family living there. Everyone in the family was injured. Their house was it's completely demolished. I mean, it, it looks like you know, as you say, there was a bulldozer and intentionally demolished it. Um, and this is after there's been some slightly heightened tensions in recent weeks. This was the third time that they shot uh, a longer range rocket than the usual ones that they shoot at Israel South. Um, and it was the third time the Hamas claimed it was an accident. Um, and you know that what they say, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So now it's three times. Um, anyway, uh, Netanyahu was in the U.S. He was supposed to meet with President Trump and speak at APAC. Um, he met with the president and then cut his trip short and came back to Israel to deal with the security situation. Um, there's been a, I guess, sort of moderate escalation in the sort of back and forth between Israel and Hamas, uh, but not to the point of a full-scale military operation. And it's been kind of, in some ways, a waiting game. I mean, Israel's escalated in the sense that they, they've bombed a bunch of Hamas structures, including Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh's office building. 
But again, not to the point that there's a, a large call up of reservists, not to the point that there are tanks going in or, or, you know, so people weren't sure what was going to happen because it's, it's been kind of tense and it, it, we're still not sure it could escalate more from here, but it could also not. It's sort of, um, you know, there's a phrase that's become kind of a cliche in Israel from 2014 for Operation Protective Edge, which is that quiet will be answered by quiet. Mm. Um, Netanyahu hasn't said that. <laughs> he hasn't said those words, hmm. but it seems more or less to be how Israel is operating. That, like, if, if Hamas calms down, then we're not going to push it. Now, the way that history remembers things, in 1995, there was a spate of, I think, three bus bombings within the final few weeks ahead of the Israeli elections in which Prime Minister Netanyahu won for the first time and beat Shimon Peres. And history remembers that as Hamas kind of putting its thumb on the scale for Netanyahu because they were no more eager for peace than was the Israeli right. Is there history beyond that? Are there trend lines that show violence spiking around elections? You know, do we have any sense that Hamas is doing this to in some way, you know, throw its weight behind one candidate or another uh, or or try to mess with the Israeli psyche as elections approach? You know, I, I don't really like those theories because they tend to completely ignore the fact that they, they tend to ignore all the other times that Hamas escalates <laughs> the situation and the fact that they shoot rockets all the time. The fact that in, in November, we didn't know that we were going to have an election and, you know, they shot 460 rockets in one day. Mm-hmm. Like to me, if there's a, if there's a spike in violence near a few elections that have happened, I mean, it's because unfortunately there's spikes of violence mm-hmm. every few months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've seen some like bizarre theories connecting elections and war, and I, I just, I don't think so. I mean, I wouldn't put it past Hamas. I just don't think that, like, you know, okay, we have, we have violence now, and we had violence six months ago also, and also there was around the time the embassy moved in May. So it's hard for me to say that it's, you know, all about that. If the election is a referendum on Gaza violence, does that play into the hands of Prime Minister Netanyahu and his Likud party and the right more broadly? Does it play into the hands of Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid and their Kahol Lavan party and the center left? You know, who wins if this is about violence from Gaza? So first I'll tell you what the polls say, and then I'll tell you a little bit of, of how I interpret it. Um, there were a bunch of polls that came out yesterday, and there's been one poll so far today. And, you know, that's after a few days of this tension and, and sort of slight escalation. And the polls have not changed in a very drastic way. Um, Blue and White, which is a Lepid and Gantz's party, they're on a bit of a downward trend, but they have been for a few weeks now. Um, and the the trend that we see where blue and white is the biggest party, but the right-wing block is still bigger, so Netanyahu has an easier path to forming a coalition, um, and, and that's been the trend for most of this election season. Um, it remains just that the gap between blue and white and Likud is, is a bit smaller than it was in some of the earlier polls. Um, now, as far as why that's happening, you know, I think, Unlike, say, in the mid-90s when Netanyahu was the upstart coming up against the establishment, um, and also the establishment had just signed a peace treaty with the Palestinians, um, for Netanyahu right now, 
uh, escalated violence is sort of a lose-lose situation. Now, I mean, if we're speaking purely in cynical political terms, because, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, God forbid if people die and things like that. So <laughs> we need to isolate this and look at it just in the political terms. Um, you know, going into a war or a military operation, you have no way of knowing how it ends. And he now doesn't have control over that situation. And so he doesn't know if it's going to end well for him. Um if he were to go in, you know, right before an election. And if he doesn't do anything, or if the public perceives him as not doing anything, which to some extent is what's happening right now, because even though Israel did bomb certain certain major sites in Gaza, um, you know, people see it as basically at this point as there being a ceasefire. Um, there's also room for criticism from the right and the left that I'm hearing of him sort of not doing enough and not taking the threat seriously enough. So there are political risks, no matter what path this video takes. Um, and so right now there hasn't been a major change. Maybe it's in part because we're sort of in a holding position and maybe it's in part because the moves have only been small. Like any shift in voting has been small. Now, there was also conflict within Gaza over this past week. It probably doesn't have much bearing on the Israeli election, but it bears mentioning. Can you just update our listeners on what's been going on in Gaza? So in Gaza, and from what we can tell, because it's very hard to get really media coverage, uh, certainly unbiased media coverage from what's happening in Gaza. Um, but from what we can see is that there have been some protests against Hamas uh, by people living in Gaza, and some brave people have gone on camera with their faces and their voices completely unmasked and have spoken out against uh, the Hamas regime. And uh, Hamas has been shooting, you know, and kill killing protesters just on the streets of Gaza. There have been a few videos that have come out. I have not independently verified them, but journalists that I, I trust and I know to be dependable have said that they're real. And some people say that the increased violence against Israel is a reaction, that Hamas thinks that if they can rally the people against Israel, then they won't have to deal with their internal problems as much. And finally, let's go north to the Golan Heights, which I think is an issue that is expected to have some implications um, on the Israeli elections. This past week, President Trump first tweeted and then issued an official, I don't know if the term is order or proclamation or, or what, extending U.S. recognition to Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. This is an issue that Netanyahu has been clamoring for for some time, but even longer, perhaps, yet your Lapid has been beating this drum. So both of the kind of main contenders in the election um, have been in favor of the U.S. extending its recognition to the Golan Heights. Um, what's this going to mean for the election? Well, you know, normally this would be a very big deal. But things have been so crazy here, especially with the situation in Gaza, that it seems to have barely made a dent. It got very little attention. Uh, and, and someone said to me that maybe it's because there's no visual effect. There's nothing you can see, like there being an embassy building. So maybe that's why people aren't absorbing it as much. But I think also it's just because the, the news cycle had to move on within was three, four days when there was a whole new drastic security situation. Certainly in that time, there wasn't any polling that I could point to to say how it affected people. But from what I see from the media attention, it sort of has passed by, which, again, it, it is 
a big deal. It is a very big deal. And I think that a lot of people were hoping for this to happen. And certainly from labor and everyone to the right of labor, they, you know, the responses were positive. On the sort of more to the far right, some people said, oh, well, this is just Trump trying to soften us up before he asks for a lot of the uh, concessions in his peace plan. But overall, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. It's just that big news, other big news happened so soon after. Well, we're now under two weeks to go until the election, and we appreciate this update and look forward to following these issues very closely. Lahav, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Inclusion. Good for the Jews? Rachel Bluestein, often known just by her first name, Rachel, or Rachel HaMeshoreret, Rachel the Poetess, was a literary giant of pre-state Israel. In 1919, as a young woman filled with love for the land of Israel and without prospects for a good life in Russia, she left the Russian Empire for Palestine and settled for a time on Daganya, the first kibbutz. But the Jewish settlement in Palestine was a hard place then, for hardy people. And when she contracted tuberculosis, Rachel was expelled from Daganya. If you couldn't work hard, often you simply couldn't make it. She died in 1931 at age 40. But the Israel of 2019 is not the Israel of 1931. Indeed, a newly announced planned town in the Negev desert called Daniel, designed around disability inclusion, is expected to be finished within five years. The 500 buildings in Daniel will have wider entrances, the sidewalks will all have ramps, and the homes will have lower countertops and sinks and adjustable furniture. Even the synagogue in Daniel will have a Torah ark with shelves that slide outward, to allow easier access to the Torah scrolls. The Israel of today recognizes what the hard pioneers of the last century couldn't afford to, that everyone can contribute to society in his or her own way. Whether in Israel's main cities and towns or in specially created ones, or even in our own synagogues and Jewish spaces here in the U.S., disability inclusion is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.